Welcome to Transformation Church RVA. This sermon is a part of our Elijah series. In this series, we take a look into the life of Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, from God miraculously providing for Elijah in the wilderness to the Lord's emphatic display of consuming fire on the mountaintop. We see God use Elijah to exhort the people of Israel to return to him and abandon false gods. This series challenges us to put our trust in Christ alone and to serve and rely on him as bold witnesses of his mercy and goodness to our family, friends, neighbors, and to the ends of the earth. I just want to say how humbled I am to be up here today. Um, (laughs) If you'd have told me three or four years ago that I'd be preaching on a Sunday morning, I'd have said you were absolutely insane, that there's no hope. Um, But God is good, and I'm here to share his word with you today. Um, So this is week four, our final week in our series on Elijah. Uh, The first week, we learned that Elijah uh, was brought into the wilderness. God brought him there uh, to train him up for his ministry to come. And then he performed miracles, uh, raised a a widow's dead son, uh, provided food for them that just confirmed that he really was uh, God's prophet. Uh, Week two, we saw God defeat Baal in absolutely spectacular fashion. Um, Elijah was up against 450 prophets of Baal, and God just in, in just crazy spectacular grandeur just declared that he was God um, and that Israel needs to return to him. Uh, week three, we saw uh, just a picture of Elijah praying to God, this bold, expectant, persistent prayer. And it's, it serves as a model for us of how we should pray. We should ex- approach God knowing that he answers our prayers and that he hears us and listens to us. And today, um, I'm calling my sermon Dependence Day. That's clever, huh? Like in- Independence Day, Dependence Day. I think you see what I'm doing. But thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> because I, I believe that as Christians, we need to be solely dependent on God and on his word. There's no other rock we can stand on. And so let's just go to the word. First um, Kings 19.1, starting there, it says, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Now how did we get here? Elijah's the, the guy that's doing all these crazy miracles. He's seen God move. How is it that Elijah is now afraid for his life and discouraged? Well, let's look back at 1 Kings beforehand and see how we even got to this point. So 1 Kings starts off with David in his old age, and he's passing on his kingdom to Solomon, his son. And Solomon was like the peak of Israel, right? All the the nations were coming to hear wisdom from him, and he was sharing with people about God and And what's crazy about that, though, is his heart turned to pagan gods. 
Um, he, he had many foreign wives who, who led him astray. And ultimately, we see Israel just devolve from there. And it's split up to the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes there. And then the two southern tribes was Judah. And right after, <laughs> right after Solomon, right, you see Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And Jeroboam, one of the first things he does when they get up there is he has the people worshiping golden calves again. Like, have we not already seen how that turned out horrifically? And yet he said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. <laughs> have we not learned our lesson already? And so I want to take us back to just introduce who Ahab even is. Um, so we see in 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, watch this, even more than any of the kings before him, including this Jeroboam who's worshiping golden calves. And as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. Now remember that. We're going we're gonna to come back to that. So remember that Jezebel is from Sidon, right? And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. This is the guy that Elijah said it wouldn't rain. He said that there was going to be a drought, and rain is the lifeblood of a nation. If there's no rain, there's no food. So that's a bold statement to make to a wicked king who does not love the Lord. That's that's. That's crazy. That's, that's just crazy boldness, right? And then we see Elijah up against all these prophets of Baal, who, as we see, Ahab was worshiping Baal. And yet Elijah wasn't afraid there. He was, he was praying. He saw God win. So how is it that all of a sudden Elijah is afraid? What, what's going on? How could that be? Well, let's keep reading. So we see, picking back up in verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. So I think we can see here that Elijah, overwhelmingly discouraged, some might even say depressed, we see four indications of that here in the text. Number one, he shuts people out. He left his servant there, alone in the wilderness, it says he went. He was so alone that he went to a solitary broom tree in the middle of the wilderness. The wilderness already is pretty alone 
and he decided to go to one solitary broom tree. That's how alone he is. That's the picture that we see painted here. And you see this often in people that are depressed. I've seen that in my own life when I went through a season of depression. That people around me would, would think I was fine, would think I was maybe even as bold as Elijah, but deep down inside, I was alone. In a, in a crowded room, I was alone. And number two, we see that he wears himself out. Many times, people who are depressed don't even have the energy to eat, to get out of bed, to take a shower. And we see that Elijah is traveling all day in the desert by himself. That's a pretty, you're, you're going to wear yourself out if you're traveling all day in the desert. And we might say, you know, from the first week, like, okay, Elijah's been in the wilderness before. No big deal. No big deal. And we saw what God did there, right? But, but this is a different picture we see here because Elijah seems to be driven by his fear and possibly his distrust in God. But God still had a plan and a purpose even in Elijah's distrust. Even in Elijah's distrust, he still had a purpose. And can I tell you, I'm very grateful of that in my own life. I'm very grateful that we serve a God who, you know, as we make plans, that he orders our steps. Because I sure have no idea what I'm doing half the time. But I know he does. I know he does. But we also see that he focuses on the negative. You see, earlier, as I was saying, kind of breaking down this history, we see God bring together a people that were not a people, right? He brought them, the exodus, into the wilderness, and then they, they wanted a king, so he gave them a king, he gave them Saul, and then David, and he said his line, David's line, there would be a king on the throne forever, right? And we see Solomon, and then after that, it's like, what, what's happening, what is happening? The whole kingdom is going to wickedness. How is God going to remain faithful here? You see, Elijah's desire was to really exhort the people of God to return to God, right? To, to, to him. He wanted to see Israel, the 10 tribes up north, Judah, the two tribes down there, reunited in worship of a holy God. And just so you know, I'm not just making this up. 1 Kings 18, uh, starting in verse 30, it says, then Elijah, this is, this, now let me paint the picture. This is when he's, he's building the altar that God will bring down fire and prove that he is the only, one and only God. Not that God had to prove that anyways. I, he has nothing to prove to us. But we see Starting in verse 30, chapter 18, it says, Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. It's pretty clear to me what he wants to see. You see, fire oftentimes is this purifying fire that 
I think is what we want, what Elijah wants to see here is that the 12 tribes of Israel would be purified and would return to the Lord, would know that they need to abandon their wickedness and return to God. But the problem is, is that didn't seem to happen. After this spectacular display, it didn't seem to happen. Elijah prayed for the drought to end, the rain came, and yet King Ahab and Jezebel are after him. And, and this, this victory that he thought he had accomplished hadn't seemed to come to pass yet. And so what we see here is this zeal from Elijah is, is good. Like, it's a good thing to, to want people to return to the Lord. But when it doesn't happen in Elijah's timeline, according to his plans, he becomes discouraged. Have you ever been the only Christian on your job, in your family, in your friend group, maybe even shared your faith with some and expected them to come to the Lord and then it didn't happen? How could that be? Isn't that, isn't that what, what should have happened, right? Like, like you know, if I, if I do something for the Lord, like, shouldn't I reap those benefits? Shouldn't I, like, how does that work? But see, the problem here is this is a misplaced hope. Elijah had put his hope in himself that he would be the one to make Israel re return to God, that it would happen according to Elijah's plans, Right? But obviously, that was not God's plan because it didn't happen. It wasn't his plan, at least at that time, for that to happen. That wasn't Elijah's to accomplish. And this misplaced hope is what happens when a good thing becomes an idol, becomes idolatrous. And I've seen that in my own life. I, I, there was a time when I thought, you know, in high school, and early on in college, that if I just had a girlfriend, right, I would be happy. That I would be happy that there would be no more, no more sorrow, no more pain if I just had a girlfriend, right? Now y'all laughing. It's silly, isn't it? Isn't that silly? Because I learned the hard way when I got that girlfriend that I was absolutely broken down. That, that I was, I wasn't content. I wasn't happy. It exposed a lot in me. It exposed that I was worshiping an idol and I wasn't worshiping God. That, I, that Jesus had been replaced with something else. When we take a good thing and make it sinful. And so the number four indication that we see here that Elijah is depressed is he forgets God. You know, one of the most common things you'll see all throughout the Bible is callbacks to the Exodus in the Old Testament. Whenever you see with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that's, that's God delivering his people out of the Exodus. Now we know now as, as you know, the New Testament, the New Covenant church, that ultimately that points to God's Exodus out of our slavery to sin into being now slaves to righteousness. But we see Elijah say that he's no better than his ancestors. Was that his goal? Was that, was that what he wanted to accomplish? He just wanted to make a name for himself? He just wanted to be better than 
Moses, who had broken the tablets, and Abraham, who lied about his wife, and Noah, who was doing some weird stuff, and I mean, there's just all kind of like, any, you name a figure in the Bible, and they're not perfect. He's not better than his ancestors. He's absolutely right. But you know what's crazy here is that when he's at his lowest, right, that's the time when we need to look to God. And we see that pattern all throughout Scripture. We see in Lamentations 3, 17 through 25. I'm trying to save y'all time instead of me just flipping around all the time for my shortened thing. So pardon my cheat sheet here. It says, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him and to the soul who seeks him. You see, that's our answer when things are not going right in our life. We don't look to ourselves because we can't fix it. Only God can deliver us. Only God can deliver us. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. When I get discouraged, I remember how the Lord brought me from where I was before. There's nothing of myself that I could have brought myself out. And so there's nothing more powerful to recall to mind sometimes than your own testimony. We each have a story of when we were low. We each have a story. We had to. That's how we had to realize that we need a Savior. There's no saving needed to be done if we're these perfect people that haven't sinned. But Jesus saved us from our sin. Therefore, we can call back our testimony and see what God has done. And can I just say also, we are terrible at diagnosing our own problems. We're terrible at it. We're absolutely terrible at diagnosing our problems, but you know the one thing that can diagnose anything? Right here, the Word of God. This will diagnose your problems. It revealed a lot in me, and it continues to, and it will continue to for the rest of my life. The Lord is continually sanctifying his people and making them more holy. So what's God's response to our depression? What does God, what's his response well, number one, we see that when we look back at the text, it says, but as he was sleeping, you know who never sleeps? God. God never sleeps. Some of my favorite passages in the Bible are, you know, you see Abraham fall asleep and God said, you just need to stay awake and all you know, we'll make this covenant, and he falls asleep, and God basically makes the covenant for both of them. Um, we see Jesus' disciples falling asleep in the garden. 
Jesus stayed awake intercessing for us. But you know, God did model for us to rest. He did that in creation. He took the seventh day and he, and he rested. He didn't sleep, but he rested. And if he modeled for us that we need to rest or that he needs to rest, then I think we probably do too. You know, one of the commandments that you see in the Ten Commandments is this idea of a Sabbath day, a Sabbath rest. And we see the nation of Israel would take the seventh day and it be holy and they abstain from work as a sign to the nations that they didn't have to just keep working and, and, and find this. They, di they didn't have to fix their... a better way to word this the nation of Israel was successful we see that with Solomon and yet they didn't even work on every seven days and all the nations toiled and toiled and toiled and couldn't keep up with them and we see that today Chick-fil-a right everybody's hungry today everybody wishes they could go to Chick-fil-a right now right but check this out I was talking to Carl about this and he said hey what, what Chick-fil-a I was like that's right, because Chick-fil-A, what do they do? They take every seventh day off, and yet they're one of the most successful businesses there is. And so my point being that they understand that their reliance is not on them to accomplish these big things. It's, it's, on, it's on God, ultimately. And so I wonder if our propensity to keep from resting is really a reflection on our trust in God. If we don't rest, what does that say about the God we serve? That we have to be the one to, to make it all happen? That doesn't, doesn't seem to jive with anything I read in here. But let's return to, to the text here. So it says, But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. Your translation may say Mount Horeb. It's kind of the same, the same place. The mountain of God, right? This is the same mountain as Moses. It was the same mountain where he received the Ten Commandments, where he saw God in the burning bush. So it seems pretty obvious to me that God's trying to say something here in taking him to Mount Sinai. Like, what is God trying to do here? I think God brought Elijah to Mount Sinai to remind him that his word still stands. You know, the Ten Commandments are the law. Like, that's, that's, that's God's word so Elijah knew what Mount Sinai signified. I think that that's what God was trying to say is, hey, no matter what you see going on in Israel, in Judah, my word still stands. The covenant still stands with God's people. There will still be a king that will come from the line of David who will reign on the throne forever. God had a purpose despite the wickedness of his people. And I think that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Yahweh is trying to say to Elijah that he's still God and God alone. It's a statement that God doesn't lie. 
He doesn't change his mind, and his promises will endure. And sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. You know, the ultimate rest is knowing that God is in control. And that his word still stands. That we can trust him. God provided food to Elijah here, right? He, he, he allows us to eat and rest. That's what, he, that's what he's calling us to as part of his response when we get broken. And I'm so grateful for God's provision in my life. It's, it's astounding. There's one often quoted verse for anxiety that I think is really fitting when we look at Elijah as well. It says, look at the birds of the air. This is Matthew 6, 26. It says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And check this out. We saw when Elijah was at the Kareth Brook that birds were bringing him food. Like God even used the birds to bring him food. It's crazy. Number two, we see God replaces our lies with his truth. When we look back at the text, it says about Elijah, there he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. You see, one of the biggest things that we often face, one of the biggest lies, is that our utility determines our value to the kingdom. I'm going to say that again. Our utility determines our value to the kingdom. It's one of the biggest lies that we face. To rephrase this, another way you could say this is, we're only worth something if we can bring something to the table for God. You see, check this out. Psalms would say that God prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We can't bring nothing to the table that God hasn't already provided for us. Because guess what? He created everything. So what can we bring to God that God doesn't have in himself? You see, my, uh, <laughs> my uh, I want to tell you a story about my grandfather. So my grandfather, he was a union bricklayer, right? He, he never took a day off, was always working hard. Um, he was the guy, I remember we would have uh, like work days with the youth and he would be badgering like 14 year olds to keep, keep going. Like, what are you doing? Like, get back to work. This is, this is not, this is not, this, well, you're working. What are you doing? This is not, this is not play time. And he, man, it was just, he's, he's, he was so funny. He had such a good, he just loved the Lord. And I remember there was one time right after a hurricane, he hopped, he's like 76, I think at this point, he hopped up on top of our carport, like trimming down a tree that had landed on top. Like he, he would do anything. He was a picture of someone that like, he was Superman to me in a lot of ways. Whew. But after he had a stroke and a heart attack, he was in the hospital and this picture of a man that could always bring something, it wasn't there, right? He, he couldn't bring nothing else. 
He was a small group leader. And I think what that says is we, we, can't, we can't always be the guy. We're not always going to be the, the one that saves the day. We're not always going to be the one that saves the day. But it was, this was during the time I was depressed, and I remember him saying that, you know, he just didn't want to be a burden on anybody. As the thoughts I was hearing, he was echoing me. I was feeling those same thoughts myself. I don't want to tell anybody about my problems. I don't want to be a burden on anybody. But check this out. As long as you have breath in your lungs, God has a purpose for your life. As long as you're living, and check this out, even after you breathe your last, we will be united with him in glory to do that exact same thing that our purpose is here, which is to say, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Forever doesn't end at death. We have a purpose for eternity. God has created us for a purpose. Now, we each have different callings. God has created us as, you know, I'm probably a pinky toe in the, in the, in the body of Christ, but, you know, we're, some of us are an arm, some of us are a leg, right? We each have different jobs, different families, different friends. But we don't build our self-worth on what we can do. We build it for what Jesus did for us on the cross, are you hearing me today? Like, we build our self-worth on what Jesus did for us. For he has called us children of God. We have been adopted into this new spiritual family. It's about what he did for us. So the number three, the, number, the third response that God has for us today is that he speaks in a still, small voice. When we look back, picking up in verse 11, it says, go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire was the sound of a gentle whisper. Can you imagine what Elijah must have been experiencing here? When we look back at, you know, Moses, this is the very similar scene to when, to when God came and gave them, the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. But God chose in this time to reveal himself to Elijah in a still, small voice. And sometimes I think we're so consumed with ourselves that we can't even see what God's doing around us. The Bible says that the word, Jesus, right? This, this is, this is I've already, we've already kind of established that God is declaring that his word still stands here. We see that the word Jesus, right? Jesus is the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That he became flesh and dwelt among men. And guess what? 
We didn't want to hear that word. We nailed him to a cross. We weren't listening. You know, God, if you just came down and revealed yourself to me, then I'd believe in you. Right? Read your Bible. That's what he did. That's what he did. He came down, revealed himself, and then we killed him. God, God still reveals himself today by his Holy Spirit dwelling in his people, in believers. Like, he still does this. This is not some kind of, God is not absent. But the crazy thing is, is I prayed that prayer myself. I remember one time I was in the shower. This is in the midst of my depression. I said, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And I'm very grateful that God was patient and that he took the time to do just that. Three days later, I went to the doctor and the lady, as I walked out, said, stay strong, man of God. That was exactly the words I needed to hear at that point. My mom watching the live stream, hey, mom, she, she drove me home from the doctor and probably had no idea what I was going through. I was holding back tears. I was, I was a wreck because the God of all creation revealed himself to me, to, to me, to, to a to, to a very small, unimportant person, he revealed himself to me. And this is the God we serve, that he cares for his people. There's one powerful picture I remember seeing. Um, I, was, I did a songwriting internship. Some of y'all know about that. And there was, I remember I was at Jefferson Park in Churchill, which... Also was the place that I proposed to Alyssa. Just a fun fact there. Thank you, thank you. Uh, but at this overlook, a thought came to my mind, which was when we look over the city, right, over Richmond, what do you, fill in the blank, whichever city, it's beautiful from a distance, right? You see these big buildings, it all seems to fall in place from this bird's eye view. But sometimes when you're in the midst of the streets there in the city, you look up, and there's a lot of big buildings. There's a lot going on. You can't understand what's happening. But if we could see from God's perspective, he, he has a plan and an order to all things. And as I look back over my life, right, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, I can see what God has done in my life. I can look back and say, oh, well, I was terrified then. I didn't know if I was real, if I, I was having all kinds of crazy, wild thoughts. And yet I look back now and I'm so grateful for that time because now I understand God's grace in a way that I never did before. My worship is informed by the experience that I had with God saving me. The four, number four response is that God remains patient with his people. And man, I am so thankful for that. I was having a conversation with someone in this room uh, earlier this week about how God doesn't tolerate sin, right? But, but he is patient with us in our shortcomings. I'm so grateful for that. You see, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses in Exodus... 
This is what he said in Exodus 34, 6. He said, it says, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And man, do we not need a reminder of that all the time. This is the word the Lord has for us. Why are we not content with that sometimes? Like, we see that. We, I've seen it in action plenty of times, and yet I'm still prone to just be like, oh, God, where are you at? I don't, I don't understand. Where, where are you going? You see, Elijah was so stubborn, right? We see here, when Elijah heard it, the gentle whisper in verse 13, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, the exact same way he did before, said, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Did you think the Lord didn't hear him the first time? Like, what's happening here? Why is he so blinded to what God is doing? He's physically blinded. He wrapped his cloak around his face as the Lord called him to come out. The Lord was going to pass by him the same way that he did with Moses, and he did just that, and Elijah didn't even want to see it. So consumed with himself that he couldn't even see what God was doing. Does he even want to see the Lord? We see the same picture with Jesus at the, in the healing pool, the man there. Does he even want to be well? 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 I'm going to turn there. First Peter 4, 12 through 13. And it says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. You know what happened to, to Elijah. He got a second chance to see God's glory. When we look at the transfiguration of Jesus, who was one of the people there? Elijah. Elijah, the guy who wrapped his face before, he wasn't ready then. The Lord gave him a second chance. And man, am I so glad for second chances. You see, he would then go, go on to prophesy to kings. Um, he would go up in a chariots of fire, this big, bold demonstration that I'm sure Elijah was happy for. It seems to be kind of part of his character. He just likes the big displays, not, not content with the still small voice. But you see, Elijah's desire to see Israel reunited in worship to the Lord God, Yahweh, was never his to accomplish. He wasn't going to see it. Only Christ Jesus himself could bring salvation to Israel. And not only that, he brought it to the nations. The Greek version of Isaiah 42, 42 is quoted in Matthew 12, 21. And it says that the name of the Jesus would be the hope of all the world. When Elijah fled into the wilderness, he couldn't see then what God was doing. But what must he have thought when he saw the face of Jesus in glory on that mountain? 
I finally understand. I finally get it. He's the Messiah, I'm not. I don't know what kind of thoughts he was having. But I know that he finally understood in a way he never did before. Have you ever asked God for something only to realize that you needed something more? Have you ever asked God for something only to realize you needed something more? We see in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that a man named Jairus asked for Jesus to heal his daughter of an illness. He didn't know then that she would actually die. And what Jesus really needed to do was bring her back to life. You remember what I was saying about us being terrible at diagnosing our own problems? When I was depressed, out of my mind, having wild and crazy thoughts, couldn't understand what was happening, I felt entirely alone. What I wanted to be was healed, but what God gave me was a new heart. He raised this dead man and brought him to life. I didn't know what I was praying for. I didn't even know what I was praying for. We talked about bold prayers, prayers with expectancy. What is it that you need to take to the Lord today? What is it that you need to declare that, hey, I can't do this on my own, and I need to be dependent on you, God, alone. I need to rest in the Sabbath rest that Jesus gives his people. I need for the Holy Spirit to convict me and make me grow. I need to stop chasing myself. So you remember what I said about Jezebel being from Sidon? This just struck me as I was preparing. I wasn't prepared to, to see this. In Mark 3, 7 through 8, it says, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and, wait for it, Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide and vast numbers of people came to see him. You see, Jezebel's plan to take out Elijah, right? Her following in the footsteps of Jeroboam with the golden calves, returning the, his people to worshiping false gods, right? They couldn't stop the Lord's plan. God was drawing people from all nations to himself, not just Israel. From Tyre, Sidon, from, you know, the Tishbe, from New Kent, from everywhere. God's calling people from all nations to himself. Our sovereign God is in control. Job 42.2 says that God can do all things and that no purpose of his can be thwarted. There is no one too far from God. There's no one too far from God. Whether you're from Sidon and you're Jezebel or King Ahab, who's the worst king that had ever happened at that point, there's no one too far from God. Today's Independence Day, and we Americans, we sure do love our independence but the life of a Christian needs to be, it desperately needs to be marked by a radical dependence on God. It, it's gotta be. It has to be. The rock of ages. What if today is your dependence day? 
What if today you declared that you can't fight your battles on your own strength? What if today we would humble ourselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from our wicked ways? What if today we would finally be still and know that he is God? What if today we would quit running and hiding like Elijah and rest in God? What if today we would come to Jesus? It says, come to Jesus, you who are weary and burdened, for he will give you rest. This is what he promised us, was rest. I'm pleading with you to become dependent on him because he will never fail you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your patience that you display toward us, God. God, thank you that you call broken people broken people like Elijah, broken people like me, to yourself, Lord. God, thank you for saving us, for we don't deserve it, Lord. I pray for anybody that's depressed in this room, Lord, that that feels alone, that is afraid, God. Lord, I pray that you would comfort them this morning, God, like you did Elijah, God, like you did for me, God. Take the initiative, Lord. Calm our hearts this morning, God, and help us to rest in you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for streaming this audio from Transformation Church RVA, located in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, check out our website at www.transformationrva.com.